fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. Good morning, Vietnam! I drink your milkshake. I'm not bad. I'm just drawn that way. Keep the change, you filthy animal. Sorry, you just tough talk a dead body? Get busy living. Or get busy dying. Keep living, man. L-I-V-I-N. That's goddamn right. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. You ain't heard nothing yet. Hello, everyone. What's happening? We're back. We're so glad to be back. For a long time, we weren't back. Uh, but now we're back. When the world goes crazy, sometimes you have to put fun things on the back burner. And that's what we did. But uh, we're back with a vengeance tonight. You think we'd be doing Die Hard with a vengeance with that bad pun, but we're not. I have found one of our OG casters, Ben Snowden. Are you with us? Whoop, whoop. This is the first time we've been with you in quite a while. So I gave Ben the pleasure of picking our movie. So I'm just going to set this up real quick. And then I'm going to hand it over to Ben because I can't wait to hear why he chose Nighthawks from 1981. It's directed by Bruce Malmuth. Um, not a super well-known dude. He did uh, a Seagull movie called Hard to Kill. He did a comedy uh, called The Man Who Wasn't There. Um, this came out in 1981. This was Bruce's uh, directorial film debut. And speaking of debuts, this was also Rugger Hauer's first U.S. film. So, um, Ben, why don't you give us a little idea of what, what drove... Just bring us into your brain a little bit, into the process of picking this movie. Wow, you don't, that's a place you don't want to go, my brain. But uh, hey, let's, let's step inside for a second. The process for this one was pretty easy because Jimmy just reached out and said, hey, do you want to do a podcast? And I said, sure. And he's like, hey, do you want to pick a movie? Sure. So my rationale was I'm going to go to streaming services you know, the three, you could call them the big three of streaming services, Netflix, Hulu, and Disney+. And the first film that I come across that makes me kind of laugh out loud is the one that I'm going to pick. So with Disney+, Plus, it was Kazam. With Netflix, it was Nighthawk. Uh, and then the third option was Hulu and No Holds Barred. The reason for that being, you know, if we're going to release this is doing something super serious. Uh, like Jimmy already alluded to, there's enough serious stuff going on in the world. So why not lighten it up a little bit with a film about a, a terrorist who wants to blow everything up, right? That That's really lighthearted. But maybe it's just the delivery of everything that makes it more lighthearted than you might think if you've never seen Nighthawks. Yeah, we thought, what better way to bring up the spirits than to find the most tepid thriller of the 80s? Listen, if you've never seen uh, an international terrorist who has an Uzi and a guitar, then you haven't lived. Nighthawk delivers. Sorry, Nighthawks, plural. Yeah, so, so this is what I was thinking earlier today. I was like, now, are we to cater to the small population who has seen the movie? Or should we spend 30 minutes trying to like build up the anticipation for this movie because at the very end of it, I, I liked it. I thought it was good. I always, I always go to the internet to see reviews and this movie was really polarizing. Like people, some people thought this was Stallone's best film. Some people, you know, thought this was on like mystery science theater level bad, but something that I uh, came up with while watching this movie I came up with a theory. It's called perspective placement paradigm. And it's this idea of having the ability to displace your cinematic standards to match the year the movie came out. And not having this skill is not a bad thing per se. Basically, like when me and Anna watch a movie, I don't ever pick a movie that's older than like the 80s, really the 90s. Um, unless it's like a cinematic classic, because she can't watch a movie and not judge it based on her standards today. So like we watched Die Hard and within 20 minutes, you know, she's seen a thousand movies do Die Hard a thousand ways. 
And even though Die Hard was the first one to do that, she couldn't, it ju- it's just too dated, you know? And so I, for some reason, seem to be really good at judging a movie based on like the, the standards of 1981. That so, makes sense too, because I thought about almost the exact same thing. You go back that far, almost 30 years, and Nighthawks has tons of the, the tropes you would associate with cop films, especially in New York. It's like, oh, these guys are gritty. They're undercover. They, you know, totally. have a scene where they're being briefed by Interpol, you know, very serious organizations, and they're knocking elbows. By the way, we have not had a Billy D. Williams reference once, but he is uh, <laughs> Sylvester Stallone's character, Deke. It's Deke Da Silva's partner, Deke Da fucking Silva. Exactly. So they're being briefed by Interpol about <laughs> Rutger Hauer's. I, I can't say this this character name without laughing a little bit. Rutger Hauer, his terrorist character's name is Wolfgar. Which is what I've always called him. It seems like it should probably belong in, you know, if you watch Masters of the Universe, there's like some episodes where Skeletor relies on some random villain to help him. That's a Wolfgar name to me. Um, Maybe some obscure Lord of the Rings character, but yeah, Rutger Hauer can make anything work. And, uh... Going back to the to the tropes, though, the terrorist who has really no motive except for blowing things up, the subway chases, um, one partner has to be in peril. Oh, the half-baked romantic angle with Irene, who is Deke De Silva's ex-wife, where they, they don't really develop that at all. She's in a couple of scenes, and then there's a reference to, oh, Deke, this is what drove your wife away. That's what Hartman, the Interpol guy, says, but in a British accent. So lots of stuff at play with stuff that you would call cliche now that wasn't as cliched back then. Yeah, there's a bunch of interesting things about this movie. You know, if, if we're thinking about, like, you know, to play devil's advocate, take an angle of, like, why should you watch this movie? For one, any self-respecting cinephile loves and respects Rugger Hauer's catalog just because his you know character choices are just so out of this world. You need yeah. to see it for that alone. Also because this was his, his first US film. So when they, when they screened this movie uh, to test before release, I guess they wanted to know whose character was more likable uh, Rugger Hauer's or Stallone's character, and it was unanimous that people were more interested in Rugger Hauer's character. So, <laughs> so, so Stallone went back and he edited out scenes with Rugger Hauer and edited in back. scenes with uh, himself. He had like final cut essentially from his, you know, you know, for as much as an actor can have, he had final movie, and it, it started this like pissing contest between Stallone and uh, Rugger Hauer. I wouldn't even call it a pissing contest because I, I, Rugger Howard in interviews just like, you know, swept, uh, swept it under the bridge, so to speak, swept it under the bridge. Um, so, you know, so, so that, so that's a reason to watch this movie. Um, as, as many buddy cop action movies as there are in this world, 1981, I was looking up other movies that came out. Um, and it was like year of the sci-fi. There was road warrior escape from New York Blowout, uh, which was directed by Brian De Palma, and Outland with uh, Sean Connery, which is actually a pretty great movie. Plus two, if we're going to talk about reasons to watch Nighthawks, before we get into things that might make you laugh out loud for the wrong reasons, like the guitar Uzi, uh, the opening scene, that is amazing what's interesting too is this movie feels like it belongs more in the 70s than the 80s even down to the the soundtrack you know there's some disco slipped in there even go to like a disco club but the opening scene it looks like um there's a lady it looks like a lady at first maybe a nurse walking down the dark streets of new york and there are these three guys like hey give me the purse well it turns out that it's sylvester stallone undercover in a mask he of course takes it off but he's still wearing like the white hose and the what appears to be a nurse's uniform and that leads to a classic exchange where this guy with the switchblades like i'll cut you man i'll cut you man 
And what does he say? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Doesn't he do say, a do a badass? Yeah, his his uh, emotional range is pretty flat throughout the whole movie. I know I'm jumping ahead here, but speaking of that, my my favorite reaction slash non-reaction of his, there's uh, a scene where Wolfgar and his accomplice Shaka, Holland, not Shaka Khan, but his terrorist accomplice Shaka, have kidnapped some UN delegates on a suspended railway, a tram. So the police are in a helicopter. Rutger Hauer uh, slash Wolfgar wastes a UN delegate's wife. And then it just cuts over to De Silva. And he's just like deadpan, kind of like he killed her. It's like completely yeah. flat. Like it yeah. didn't matter. If you're, a, if you're a Stallone fan, I don't think that bothers you. Because I feel like from 19... Like, right around 1980 to 1995, it was this four-way battle between Arnold versus Stallone versus Seagal versus JCVD, Jean-Claude Van Damme. And I don't know too many people who like all four of those equally. I grew up on Arnold. I've seen, actually, I've seen very little Stallone movies. Like, I've never seen Cobra. Oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> that's but, one I mean, of, that's, That might be my favorite Stallone movie. I mean, they they all have pretty similar acting range. I mean, they're all bad actors for all intents and purposes. As much as I love Arnold, he's a bad actor. I think Steven Seagal takes the cake for the worst actor. Oh, that's funny, too, because our friend Bruce Malmuth also directed Steven Seagal in Hard to Kill. Right, which I've also never seen. Yeah, it's uh, it's like all the other action movies from from that era. But the emotional range thing is is something once again that is worth watching with Stallone. Well, we're just gonna give things away just by talking about the movie. But Wolfgar, he's done his bombings over in Europe in London, so he has to go to Paris and get his face changed, right? By the way, if you go to a back alley pla plastic surgeon and say, make me beautiful, they make you look like Rutger Hauer, so that's probably a win. But he, yeah, comes, yeah. he comes to New York. With a shave and a haircut. That's pretty much the extent of his plastic surgery. He comes to New York, and eventually the cops catch up to him with their sleuthing, and Fox and DeSilva are chasing him through a subway, and Fox gets close enough to him, but Wolfgar cuts his face, and De Silva's right by him and can see that he's probably not going to die, but he's freaking out. He's like, I'm going to kill you! I'm going to kill you! Yes, yes, yes. But you compare that to, you know, he cares about his partner who got cut, but will survive, to a lady just got killed, and it's just like, eh, yeah, whatever. Yeah, I know. The um, Rugger Hauer was for sure my favorite elements of this movie the first scene was uh was legit i thought that was a that was a great scene i think in its in its biggest strength it's a successfully gritty thriller with plenty of violence there's great chase scenes and there's an appropriate ending with the bad guy but with rugger hauer so so we meet this character wolfgar he goes into this department store and he's talking to this sales lady and he starts like blatantly hitting on her and he's, he's pretty charming. You know, you know, it's Rugger Hauer, so he's got some charm. And he basically like slides a bomb like on the floor between her legs and walks out and like levels the first floor. So you kind of get an idea of who this guy is. And you're like, okay, I can get on board with this. This is great. This is fucking awesome. And then he picks up this lady from the nightclub, kills her, returns to the same nightclub, and he makes the eye contact with Stallone and then he just, like, I fucks Stallone for, like, a good 45 seconds. Totally blows his own cover. And then just pulls out a gun and starts blasting in the middle of the nightclub. That was one of those things that if you don't have perspective paradigm theory, that's not going to work with you. That's just, like, too ridiculous for words. Yeah, speaking of that again, the main scene like that that I wanted to talk about, not just the helicopter tram showdown... But they're at the gala, right? They're at the UN gala. They're in New York City. They know Wolfgar's there because he's blown up a random building. And 
he has a known accomplice. Interpol's supposed to be at this gala, right? His accomplice, I think, did what? Shaka just dyed her hair blonde and got into this gala. So Hartman, the Interpol guy who's been briefing the New York City cops about Wolfgar, he's just walking around, checking things out in this gala. He goes up the escalator slowly. He recognizes Shaka almost instantly and does nothing as she slowly draws her gun out and shoots him. Slowly. <laughs> that one really got me. Right, right. Oh my uh, He God. just has a surprise look for like up to 10 seconds as she slowly kills him. Yeah, there's, there's just, and like that, but like that doesn't even really bother me. Yeah, it doesn't you know, bother can, me either. I, you know, I can, I can look past, I can look past stuff like that super easily, but what trips me up is like what I was talking about with Rugger Hauer blowing that lady to smithereens. And then towards the end of the movie, he like goes out of his way to get a infant off of this tram that he's taken hostage. And so my question for Wolfgar is, how do you want to be remembered, man? Do you want to be like this ruthless, take no prisoner sort of terrorist? Or do you want people to remember you for having a heart? Because you're like giving me mixed messages here. Yeah. You know, that's distracting to me when I can't because I want to I want to like relate to a character I, I don't have to like have sympathy for him obviously he's the antagonist you're supposed to not like this guy but like that was just a really weird choice to like to kill a woman in front of stallone and then be like i want to get this baby off of here because babies are the future especially if that would give him more leverage because he's talking about how he wants all of these terrorist comrades released from you know confinement and he does that, and you think, okay, this doesn't make sense. But then if you go back to the format of a film like this in 1981, where you're not going to get a whole lot of character development that happens outside of exposition, like a lot of Wolfgar's character development happens in an Interpol briefing. Um, you think about Deke De Silva and his wife, or ex-wife, sorry, Irene, that's supposed to play a role, and you don't really get a whole lot of Irene outside of a couple scenes or why they broke up. And then even with Deke De Silva, there's just a little bit of quick dialogue about, oh, you're in the Vietnam War and killed 59 people. It's just kind of like a, a side thought. It's like, wow, that could have been developed a little bit more. And then um, you don't really know a whole lot about Fox except that he's there. Really, And I wonder if that's telling to the fact that, I mean, I personally didn't really care about the love story. I wasn't going to buy it anyway, so yeah. there's no really reason to, to waste time on, the, um, on that backstory. I mean, this was five years after Rocky. This was after uh, Death Race 2000, which is just a great movie in general. But I guess I say that to be like, shouldn't he know better? Yeah. I mean, I know he's a bad actor, but that scene when they're when he kills that woman on the tram and he's like, "No, please God, don't kill her." And he shoots her and he's like, "Oh god, she's dead." <laughs> it's like, "Were you rooting for her to die? You don't really seem to care." Yeah, it's one of those deals where they just think, "Oh, well, here's some star power that's going to put butts in the seats." It's interesting, too, when you look at those positive reviews that you had mentioned of Nighthawks because a lot of people say they like this film because Sylvester Stallone has a little bit more restraint, like his character's not just going and wreaking havoc all the time, which I can kind of agree with, even though I, I kind of wanted to see yeah. a little bit more action because there's... A little bit of a dead spot in this film where they're kind of just doing random stuff like they set up a sting operation that gets interrupted when they're taken back to the the precinct and they're told oh you know you have to work with interpol now and for some reason De silva's mad about that oh at the very beginning yeah you're transferring me what yeah 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 which i i liked i liked that they showed that sting because it showed you a little bit of De Silva's character and integrity, you know, not taking the bribe and all of that. That's cool. I'm I'm down with that. Yeah. But yeah, so of those actors that I mentioned, Arnold Stallone, Seagal, and JCVD, like nobody really has the everyman thing going on. That was one of the reasons that I liked 
Die Hard as much as I did, because that was the first everyman action hero that I ever saw. And that's kind of a trope now. That's something that exists normally. But as otherworldly as Stallone is in Rocky, and the fact that you really... It's like, I'm still not sure this guy is from Earth. I think that Nighthawks is like the most down-to-earth, like, normal guy in a bad situation that I've ever seen him in. Yeah, that's a great point. Because you reach a certain point when you get in the discussions of these big action heroes that they turn to self-parody pretty much. Like, when they started off, they had a certain role that propelled them to stardom and they kept on trying to recreate it. So, Stallone had Rocky... But he hadn't necessarily reached that level yet of action hero status at this point. Yeah. So you don't see as much of those like, hey, I'm kind of winking at the the camera and doing a callback to something else. Yeah. You can tell he's living within the universe of the film, which plays to its strengths. Yeah. Which of those four did you did you uh, spend more time with when you were growing up? Schwarzenegger. Yeah, me too. He's got that personality, that likability factor. But if we're going to go with straight up repetition, if we're going like, okay, you pick from all of those but in the film you watch the most, it would definitely be Bloodsport. Yes. Yes. Probably just because yes. it was on TV so much. Yeah, Blood, Bloodsport's legit. I had written down that Arnold had Terminator, Stallone had, I always think of Rambo is more, you know, because it's a franchise. Well, I guess so is Rocky, obviously, but yeah. Seagal had Under Siege, and JCVD had Bloodsport. Those were, like, their big ones. Demolition Man. You know they're doing Demolition Man 2? Did you read this? Yeah, I'm excited. Oh, you sent me that, didn't you? Yeah, I did. Yes, that was awesome. I'm so, I'm so thrilled. I hope that Sandra Bullock comes back. I hope they all come back, really. I mean, the more people you can get from the, uh, the original the more he can boost up the nostalgia factor and just make us all happy. Exactly. That, that's what we want to see. But yeah, going, going back to the idea of the everyman, for some reason, when I was younger and growing up on these Arnold movies, which I've seen every single one multiple times, I can say with confidence, two of my favorites, Total Recall and Running Man. I love Running Man. The worst part about Running Man is whoever the screenwriter was that decided to name his character Ben Richards. Get the fuck out of here. You're going to name Arnold Schwarzenegger Ben. Did he grow up in Indiana? See, that's that's what's weird about it because it was based off of a, a Stephen King novel that he had written under the, uh, the Richard Bachman pseudonym. But I think by the time it was developed into the movie, people knew it was Stephen King. So there are probably things that they didn't want to change, but it's like, here's this all-American guy with an Austrian accent. Sure. Yeah. I mean, it's like any movie that he's in, you have to write his physique into the story. Yeah. You know, like you have to explain who this monstrosity is, as opposed to like Bruce Willis or even Jean-Claude Van Damme, even though he's obviously French as fuck. It's still like a pretty straight up, you know, French accent. So that's fine. I don't need like a backstory on his character, but I think Total Recall, he played a construction worker. So that's legit. I forget who he played in. I don't remember his occupation in Running Man. Oh, I think he was a construction worker in that too. It's brilliant. It's just fucking brilliant. Can we maybe uh, spend the next three hours talking about gems like jingle all the way kindergarten cop yeah so some so we can get into the to the bigger problems with nighthawks i guess we should mention too that i think the best part of this movie is the badass title and i guess that's what they nickname new york city cops who work the night shift are nighthawks which is just great See, Which some people great. are probably going to stumble into this thinking it's a documentary about the painting. Right, right. They're right. going to be so disappointed. Or Lady Hawk. This is not about Lady Hawk. And I guess there's like three other movies named Nighthawks, which I don't... That's to no fault of anybody's. Nighthawks is a fantastic name. There's a coffee shop in, in our neighborhood called Nighthawk that I always go to and write. It's just a fantastic uh, little dive. 
Are they sponsoring this? I'll talk to them about it. I don't even know if they're open. And they're going to be like, we can give you $3 and one cup of coffee. One medium lukewarm cup of coffee would be fine. So Stallone has 52 registered kills in the battlefield, but he has this like huge moral dilemma with possibly putting somebody's life in jeopardy. And this is one of the themes of the movie, you know, killing the main antagonist, but putting somebody's life in danger, potentially, he's not okay with that. And he's like, I didn't become a cop to kill people. Yeah, that one didn't make sense. Why did you go overseas? What are you, what, what are you prepared to do? And they didn't do anything to make allusions to anything like PTSD. So you think, okay, what's his reason for saying he doesn't want to kill? Yeah, yeah, 100%. Especially the scene on the, right off of the train when he um, has a clear shot and he doesn't take it and everybody's yelling at him to take it. And he doesn't take it. And even after Billy D. Williams gets stabbed and he goes to see Billy D. in the hospital and Billy D. looks up and he goes, you should have taken the shot. I feel like that's the only reason his character's in the movie is to say that one line. Yeah. Um, and he does, he does really good. I feel sorry for... Well, I shouldn't say I feel sorry for, but I have sympathy for characters who... For actors who are have a good acting range and have good acting chops, but they were in something that was so big that afterwards it's like, you're never going to outrun this. You know, Billy D. obviously I'm referring to the uh, film Action Jackson. No, I'm not. I'm referring to Star Wars. I thought uh, you were referring to the Colt 45 ad that he did. Oh, I never saw that. Oh, let me tell you. Yeah, so, because he did really good, but unfortunately, you know, or kind of like um, Rain Wilson... In the office, you know, he did, he did a serious movie called Super, where he played a uh, every man who tried to become a superhero, and it was a it was a good movie. It was definitely like not a family friendly superhero movie, but you'll always not be Dwight, you know. Yep. And maybe that's okay with him. Maybe maybe like I imagine actors are a little bit resentful towards you know that and the fact that like they'll never be able to outrun this character. I wonder if Billy D feels that way. Yeah, that's a good question. Obviously, it paid off for him, you know, a few decades later when Disney came to calling. Yeah. But uh, yeah. it has to be pretty tough if you have aspirations to be an actor and you keep on trying to not be, in his case, you know, Lando. But then you maybe just like end up at conventions and people just want your autograph or want a picture with you because you were Lando. It's Yeah, yeah. Like you'd think at some point you'd be like, you motherfuckers know I did other movies, right? But at the same time, you know, you obviously you have to be grateful because you were in one of the best selling, one of the best reviewed, one of the best overall film, you know, franchises of all time. Yeah, very true. But um, when we went and watched the new Star Wars movie, I feel like every scene he was in, he was just so excited. And he just had this look on his face. He's just like, you know what, guys, I don't care. I'm just happy to be here. Just tell me, just give me whatever line you want me to say. I'm just glad y'all called me back. Give me that Mickey Mouse money. Yeah, exactly. Literally, kill me off. I don't care. I'm just happy to have a reason to get dressed today. So he was good. Let's see, what other stupid things did... Ro oh, yeah. He hides his... Uh, he hides his terrorist kit in the closet. That's a pretty bad hiding spot. Yeah. Yeah, that's funny. Big bad Wolfgar... When he comes to New York City, he makes friends with this uh, flight attendant, and she has an apartment there in New York City, so you know there's a scene where she's gone, and he has a couple briefcases with like, guns and grenades. Well, he thought it was a good idea to leave that huge briefcase like way out in the open in the bottom of the closet. Yeah, stainless steel briefcase. Let's try to make this as obvious as we can. And of course, he walks in when Pam, the flight attendant, discovers the briefcase because that's the way it just has to happen. Uh, he wasn't busy doing his his terrorist stuff at that moment in time. He was uh, maybe enjoying a, a cup of coffee from Nighthawk. <laughs> Visit your local Nighthawk, which might be the only Nighthawk. I hope, I hope so. Yeah, but yeah. It, it is funny, and it's it's like... 
this is maybe more of like a technical complaint, but from a story, you know, perspective, I know we, we just watched this, so I don't know if anybody else is even still listening to this point, but they better be. She she finds the, the briefcase and then he catches her looking at it. And then like the next scene, she's dead. So that's fine. Like she had to die. That's no big deal. But it didn't really have to go down that way. You know, like for her to die, for her to find it that way. It was such a obvious, you know, it was such a stupid place to hide it. And if the end game for that, you know, if the writer's like, well, let's have her find the briefcase in the closet. And then that's why, that's how we'll facilitate her dying. Like, there's a better way to go about that. You know, that's insulting to his character that he would hide it in the closet of his girlfriend, you know, living girlfriend, I guess. That's funny, too, because it uh, it plays back into being forgiving for some movies from a certain era. Like, Yeah, totally. Villains have to be dumb enough to move the plot forward and to be caught. And his thing is, you know, he has to get in trouble. So Shaka can show up and say, guess what? Now Interpol knows about you again. Yeah. Yeah, it was fine. I was just, I was, I, I like when I watch terror movie, terrorist movies where the terrorist is um, not falling in the same Trap falls, and I guess in 1981 there really were no trap falls because this was, you know, pretty new. I read that this was originally supposed to be French Connection three, and then Gene Hackman said no, so they just rewrote it. And it <laughs> does feel very French Connectiony, you know, with like the gritty uh, practical effects, action sequences, and like just the underbelly of New York. That chase scene through the underground construction site I thought was actually pretty cool. Yeah, I liked that too. There's a there's a certain aesthetic too. I mentioned earlier about it feeling more like a a '70s film, and maybe that's maybe that's why um, that it was supposed to be a sequel instead of a standalone. It, it almost feels like after I watched it that this was like a longer pilot for a series almost because you just kind of get snapshots of who Deke De Silva is. And sometimes you think, well, if a movie's successful enough, they can do a sequel. It just feels like there could have been more exploration into his character, even if it was just a little bit. Like, I was really interested to know more about his Vietnam experiences and how that influenced how he interacted with criminals because you know he wasn't afraid to strangle them with a purse strap per se or beat the hell out of them he just didn't want to shoot them supposedly uh until you know maybe he has to dress and drag again maybe toward the end of the film to subdue wolfgar maybe yeah it was really weird (laughs) So, so we can talk about the ending, I guess, a little bit, because uh, yeah, uh, if I, if I would have to guess how many people regularly listen to this that know Nighthawks, there's a physical therapist, good friend of mine, who's like a movie nerd, like hardcore nerd, and I was talking to him, and we were just talking about you know what we've watched and. I said, yeah, I watched Nighthawks the other day. And he was like, oh, God, Nighthawks. I haven't seen that movie in forever. I think that's probably the general consensus of people. So to catch you up to speed. So this tram gets hijacked. The tram lands and uh, Rugger Hauer has this like mass of hostages tied together to move from the tram to the bus, which is his escape. And he's going to bring all these people onto the bus and escape with all these people. And so he like crouches down and hides as he's, you know, going on to the bus and it doesn't go as planned. And he runs onto the bus and he drives off and he immediately finds a ramp, I guess, New York city. They just have like ramps that launch into the Hudson um, at different areas around the city. (laughs) And uh, you don't see Rugger Hauer and then it like fades out. So at this point, I don't know if we're supposed to think 
that he died or if we're supposed to like if we're supposed to know that it's still building towards the ending right because it's 2020 this movie came out so of course now we're like well you know he's not dead but back in 81 i wonder if people saw that and they're like oh i'm gonna assume that 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 he died and i didn't need to see that on screen because now we need to see the death on screen because this has been played out so many times you know yeah and if we want to look at um i don't know if it'd be considered a a minor or major gripe when it comes to the ending or other plot points especially with the the shots that deke de silva doesn't take man they telegraphed that so yes. hard yeah especially on the bus that's what i was talking about i couldn't remember the exact like blocking of how that went down but uh they could have easily got him or like shot out the tires or on the other end rugger Hauer could have just started like blasting civilians you know if, if he's in a mood to be a uh, force to be reckoned with to kind of give away the ending to i can't remember the exact scene but they make reference to, you know, things getting personal and Deke calls his ex-wife and tells her to be extra safe. And not only do they telegraph, yeah, Deke's not going to take shots for whatever reason throughout this film. They also telegraph what's going to happen in the ending when you put together what happened at the beginning. And you're like, yep, that's going to pop up again, isn't it? And then it does. Oh, that's who that... I was trying to think about... I couldn't remember who that... The woman that Stallone dressed up as was supposed to be, but I guess he was dressed up as his ex-wife. Well, I don't know if he specifically dressed up as ex-wife. I think a lot of it's just like taking cues from some of the dialogue, especially like, hey, you're not going to take the shot. And then they emphasize that like three or four times. Like, (laughs) okay, he's not going to take the shot. And then... They really drive that home you know, things getting personal and he's worried about his, his ex-wife and calls her like, okay, I kind of get where this is going to go. But I think a lot of that's just stuff that we take for granted now because, you know, once again, it's 1981 and there are certain things that just hadn't been done as much at that point. One thing that comes to mind, this is an aside, but forever ago, Jimmy and I went to see The Visit by M. Night Shyamalan. There was a shot, I won't give away the ending since that one's somewhat recent, but there was a certain shot in the film where, the, you know, it's hovering over a, a mental institution and a character says a certain thing. I turn to Jimmy and say, here's what the ending of the film will probably be. And that's what it was. And that was the last time I saw a horror movie with Ben. No, I actually, I actually love doing that. I think part of me was just bitter that I didn't come up with it first. But it is true. And he's one of those directors that has, you know, he like relies on that uh, twist. So that's kind of another thing, too. He was somebody that kind of like, I wouldn't say he peaked with Sixth Sense, but he definitely like etched himself into cinema with that style of filmmaking. So then I wonder if he was just like, well, fuck, I guess I have to have a mind blowing twist at the end of every movie. No pressure. That had to be pretty exhausting, too. Yeah, especially considering I don't think that there was i i do like unbreakable i know there's a small population who supports that movie and i'm i'm one of those because i was kind of like pre-marvel cinematic universe and so that was one of the first superhero movies that i remember seeing that kind of like broke that mold i still haven't Uh, seen glass but i did like split yeah and also signs is a fantastic movie i'll stand behind signs any day so yeah so the ending so he he the bus the bus flies off the ramp. You see a stuntman swim away from the bus. I don't think that's supposed to be seen. The version <laughs> on Netflix. There's a couple different versions. There's one where there's a nightclub scene where they use the song Brown Sugar by the Rolling Stones. And there's an edit where I think part of that scene is omitted. But the Netflix version is the cut that has Brown Sugar, which is good because that's a great song. It's weird that they just loop the second verse the scene is like 12 minutes long and they just loop the same verse over and over again so yeah so the bus crashes and then it cuts to a dark house and this woman is doing the dishes and rugger Hauer shows up and pulls out a knife and like a lowly mugger just like walks right up to her with a knife like ready to stab no like master plan and turns around 
And guess what? Stallone is in drag again. Again. But I wonder how long he was standing there doing dishes, just waiting for Rugger Howard to come back in. Yeah, there was even the red lighting, too, in that scene. Just random red lighting in this uh, domestic space, you know? Which I can I understand that if it's been done stylistically, maybe in other parts of the film. But it's like, yo, we ain't talking Suspiria here. Just get some lamps to go in. But didn't he also have um, De Silva in drag had his uh, his like his gun in a plastic bag or something? Yeah, what was that about? He was like, did he keep it in the sink out of water? Yeah, that's a good question. Maybe I missed that detail. But the best part, once again, Rudger Hauer is going to deliver, but you know he gets blasted a few times and he melodramatically falls back into a door with glass in it. So of course he's going to break it and then stumble down some steps. So who really won? Uh, Wolfgar. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it makes me want to go and watch some of Rugger Hauer's pre-U.S. films. Because this isn't like an obscure movie, but it's definitely not a household name. So if you're looking for some uh, cheesy action or uh, you you need a good movie to drink to, maybe this is something you should watch on Netflix. If you got them, watch them. Yeah, um, it was it was a good watch. This isn't really a um, this podcast is not really a movie review show. But by the time we're done, you usually have a pretty good idea of what we thought of the movie. And like I stated at the at the beginning of this, I did like the movie. It is definitely worth a watch. There's not a lot of like replayability. This is not a movie many many wives I think will like. This is pretty like male dominated alpha machismo gritty action at its best yeah if they were to do this movie again like do some type of reboot which they probably want because like you said it wasn't popular enough i bet they would give shaka a much larger role because she's kind of like the messenger between this unseen head of the terrorist group which that'd be kind of fascinating because it's been a while since i've done an episode but every once in a while we talk about you know what if scenarios would it be interesting if they went down a certain path instead of the ones that they did for sure with this film it's it's basically what you see is what you get it's probably exactly what you what you think it is for a cop film from 1981 (laughs) there's some uh there's some awkward scenes we were talking about like the escalator scene and some wooden acting from stallone but you should probably anticipate that if, if you know about this. One of the things that is great is Riker Howard's in it. I, I think, too, that Nighthawks maybe isn't as much of a cult classic or a film people refer to just because there's not as much absurdity when people are looking back to films like this, like there weren't enough explosions, like no one got impaled by a police car hood, you know, yeah. Yeah. stuff like that that's kind of gonzo and out there. But I liked it. Probably won't ever watch it again, but I liked it. Yeah, a couple other funny writing things that I noticed. At the at the, the first act of the movie, when we first meet Rugger Howard's character, he's got this beard and glasses, and um, he goes to Paris, and he finds a plastic surgeon to get a facelift and Interpol is informed of that. So they're like, we have no idea what he looks like. I feel like that's a totally pointless story element. It doesn't really go anywhere. It doesn't really like significantly impact the story at all. They're at the nightclub and Billy D and Stallone are walking around trying to, you know, get some information and who do they find, but the guy that they're looking for and Stallone is just like etching this this little portrait of what Rugger Hauer might look like. And he did a pretty good job and they spotted him that way. But again, it was just like, this was like a total like pointless story element. I don't really know why they did that. There was that and then there was a scene where Rugger Hauer listed a, a list of men and Stallone had recorded it. And he taped it to his chest. And so we mentioned Rugger Hauer needs to get rid of this, this infant. 
So Ruggerhauer and all these hostages are suspended 200 feet above the Hudson, and they need to get rid of this infant. So uh, Ruggerhauer insists on Stallone strapping a harness to himself, and then they lower a cable down from the tram, hook it up to Stallone, and then they bring Stallone up into the tram where he has some dialogue exchange with Ruggerhauer, and he plays this tape that's just this recorded list of men to like prove what that the woman is a bitch. <laughs> I don't really know like what the point of that was. Maybe I missed it. Yeah. That came out of nowhere. I think maybe there's like a detail I ever looked to, but it comes up again and you think, uh, what? I don't even know where this came from in the first place. Maybe they right, cut right, something right. and kind of forgot about that in the editing process. And I also really like where, <laughs> You've seen this done before, where the terrorist holds a gun to the good guy's head, and he goes, say, I brought this city to its knees, and then say, cowards. And then Stallone goes, you've brought this city to your to our knees, cowards. And then Rugger looks around like, yeah, you hear that? It's like, motherfucker, you have a gun to his head. We're not, like... That doesn't mean anything. Yep. That doesn't give you any street cred. See, if he wanted street cred, he should have had that knife with him and just like cut off one of De Silva's fingers and been like, that's how you'll remember me. Yeah, exactly. Which it's it's interesting too that with Nighthawks, this is before Rudger Hauer really caught on in bigger roles in the United States. But, you know, you think of the work he did, especially in The Hitcher, it's like, yeah, he can definitely go there when it comes to playing someone deranged. And they definitely could have gone there with an R rating, but for whatever reason, they didn't. So it leads me to ask, what's your favorite Rugger Howard movie? If we're talking about him as the centerpiece, it's tough to go against the Hitcher, but then Blade Runner exists, so... Yeah, which was like a year after this, so he was yeah. about to explode. But if you're looking like, you know, at who's who's kind of in the driver's seat, because with Blade Runner, there are a lot of contributors, but, you know, that's focused on Deckard. So there you go, Harrison Ford, you glory-stealing bastard. Yeah, I'm on the same page as you. So one of the things that I really enjoy is reading IMDb goofs. <laughs> So some of them are interesting, but some of them are just like, dude, user 2387, you had nothing better to do with your day than to submit this goof about Nighthawks from 1981. Somebody wrote, in one scene, Pam says she flies Pan Am coast to coast. Pan American Airlines only flew internationally from and to the U.S. to fly Pan Am between coasts of the United States. One would have to leave the country at some point, land in a foreign country, and take another flight back. Like, ooh, good call, bro. Yeah, it's like, wow, I can't believe I didn't catch that. Wow, you must be a lot of fun. Well, now I can sleep easy. It's pretty hard to beat Hitcher. People mention uh, people mention bleeders almost never. And that's a clear oversight. Yeah, it's one of those deals where... At a certain point, most actors who know that they're past their prime and just want to make money, or I don't want to say they're always past their prime, they might have a good role out there for them that they can nail, but those roles don't just come in. They're just like, hey, this might look like a steaming pile of garbage, this bleeder's script, but I will get paid to do the work, so I will do it. Usually for a movie to acquire cult classic status, it's usually at no effort of the filmmakers. And um, it seems like some of his later movies were made hoping to be cult classics, and then it just happened. But like Hobo with the Shotgun is such a gonzo, crazy-ass movie that you can't, you can't, it's impossible to take that movie seriously. And I feel like he was very well aware of his status as an actor, that he just decided, like, I'm going to do this movie because fuck it. That movie is so ridiculous. It's hard to believe that somebody made that with a, uh, with, without trying to have, like, a, a black comedy approach. Because they're going to pay me the big bills, or at least some bills. Maybe that, maybe that was Rutger Hauer's golf cart money. Yeah, we were talking earlier about Stallone not having a personality. That, like, 
really plays against him in my opinion and with actors in general who just have kind of a type cast character in every single movie and arnold did kind of but he always made each character his own in some way and i feel like so many of stallone's movies just like bleed together like if you're looking at all of his films it's like the sylvester stallone cinematic universe where he's himself or a variation of himself in almost everything kind of what Dwayne the rock johnson is for extended periods in the past where it's just like yep you, you know exactly how they're going to act and what kind of character they're going to be yeah be cool kind of changed my mind with the rock because he played that wannabe actor and that was pretty against wrestler turned acting like character types and it didn't hurt that that was a pretty good movie well that's about all i have to say on nighthawks i can't think of anything else they got a 6.4 out of 10 on imdb well deserved it's streaming on Netflix. Watch it or don't. So you can listen to all of our previous episodes at soundcloud.com slash movie show theater. You can also find us on iTunes and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Ben, thanks so much for coming on. My pleasure. And we'll see you next time. This is Movie Show Theater. Theater.